Well, this morning we're looking at chapter 6, verses 10 to 20 of Ephesians. This is the last set of instructions that Paul gives on how we are to walk in Christ. He began this all the way back in chapter 4, in verse 1, when he said you need to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Uh, and and he's, he's been telling us all along how we can walk in Christ. That is, each of us having been made alive in Christ, and together all of us having been brought near in Christ, as his body, the church, are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And he has instructed us to walk in unity, to walk in love, to walk in light, to walk in wisdom. And now he instructs us to walk in the whole armor of God. In a way, it's armor of God day. Every child in the church loves it when it's armor of God day. We love the lesson about the armor of God, whether it's Sunday school or vacation Bible school, if you are a kid, you love Armor of God Day. I remember, I remember a piece of construction paper on the table in front of me and drawing, you know, a little cross on it with a crayon, and then, you know, the, the teacher would hole punch the 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 piece of construction paper, and I'd string it with yarn, draw a little knot, and they could put the Put, the, put that over my head, and I had the little breastplate of righteousness right on me, right there in Sunday school. I thought that was so cool. Uh, the helmet of salvation, it was, a, it was a construction paper made thing also. Um, a teacher would have to find the two ends of the, of the paper and then tape it in the back so that it would fit, which apparently is a spiritual gift because mine sat on top of my head and everybody else has slipped down over their eyes. Being able to get the, the helmet of salvation to fit properly is a little bit tricky. It didn't really matter in the end. It all ended up on the floor as soon as they handed out the sword of the Spirit. As soon as we got the little paper towel, you know, cylinders, as soon as those were given out, it was all over with. That's all that mattered. There are six pieces of the armor of God, and there's a reason why the swords last. It's for Sunday school teachers, because once the kids get the sword, none of the others really matter. Give a kid a paper towel roll, and they immediately start sword fighting all across the room. It's in chaos. The clever teacher doesn't hand those out. She just says, now, your sword is your Bible. Leave it laying on the table in front of you and turn to Ephesians. See if you can find the book of Ephesians. That's the clever teacher. Why do you think it is that Paul instructs us to put on armor? Think for a minute. Armor. What is going on in the world that we would need to wear armor? I mean, nobody said grab your pistol and your Clevelar vest and helmet to come to church today. And yet Paul is saying you need armor. What is happening around us that we would need to suit up like a warrior? Who would set themselves against Good people who just want to walk in love and light and wisdom. Who would try to break up your marriage and your family, the things Paul just talked about prior to this passage? Break up your peaceful household. Who would set themselves against the church to divide it and destroy it, to, de to break up the household of God? Who desires to separate us from God? Why do you and I need to be so strong that we need the very power of God to be able to walk in a manner worthy of his calling? Well, if you want to follow along on the sermon outline in front of you, you'll notice this theme. Because we live in a world of darkness, Christ has given his church gifts of armor to deploy. 
that we will resist the devil's schemes and advance the kingdom of God. In a nutshell, I think that's what Paul's doing here. And so let's read about this armor in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10 through 20. This is the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Well, Paul is giving in this section one last needed command. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You notice the redundancy. Let's break it down a little bit. Paul, remember, is speaking to the church. He's speaking to the church. And just before this, Paul was speaking to wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters directly. Now he's speaking to the church, the whole unified, gathered household of God, the church. We are the ones who are in Christ, which is the relationship Paul emphasizes throughout this letter. And I hope I've stressed it. (laughs) We are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We've been made alive in Christ. We've been brought together in Christ. And now we're walking together in Christ. Throughout Ephesians, the Lord always refers to Christ. So that's who he's talking about. So being made alive happens in Christ. Being brought near happens in Christ. And it's no surprise here that being strong happens in Christ. Now, it's one of those passive commands. We're the ones receiving the strength. That's important to understand. This is critical to our understanding of the passage. See, Paul is not saying, now that you guys are in Christ, go out and be strong. Paul is not saying, go now and be independent. Now that you've got the power, go out and be independent for Christ. No, Paul is telling us to be of even greater dependence on Christ. See, I think when we think of this chapter, when we think of putting on the armor of God and walking in the Christian life in its power, we think of it like a video game, right? Where you're walking around and you're, and you're trying to beat things and win things and you see a, a weapon over there, you go pick it up and now you've got the weapon to continue your walk to do what you want to do. And if, if you need more power, you pick up that jewel that's flashing over there and you get more power and, or you pick up some money and you can buy more power that way and more armament so that you can go about your journey independently. But that's not what this is at all. 
This is not a call to independence. It's a call to deeper dependence. You must be in Christ, and you must go deeper into Christ to have the power of Christ, because it's the power of Christ that stands. You want to be in that power. Remember how the letter started all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every blessing that operates with power in the spiritual realm, that's the heavenly places in chapter 1, verse 13, and it's, the, it's, the, it's where the forces of evil are in the heavenly places here in chapter 6. Everything, every blessing that operates with power in the spiritual realm is gifted to us in Christ. So that has to be our orientation, our understanding. So we who are in Christ are to have an even greater dependence on Christ for the divine empowerment that Paul's talking about here. Because it's the divine empowerment that we need. Why do you think the church needs to be strong in the strength of Christ's might? Now we can answer that in many ways. But at the center of Paul's answer would be oneness. Here's why you need strength. Here's why you need might. Because you need oneness. It is the nature of the church to be one body. This is not new news. Paul's been hammering on this. One body with one hope, one faith, and one Lord. In chapter 4, Paul instructs us to work hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's for unity and peace that we need strength. And for that, we who are in Christ need the strength that Christ gives. And Paul describes that strength as pieces of armor in these ways. He says, put on the whole armor of God. And this isn't the first time Paul has told us to put something on, is it? I mean, that that should tickle your ear just a little bit. In chapter 4, he told us, put off your old self. That's who you were. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you walked as a Gentile, and instead to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in the righteousness of God and holiness. Because that's who you are already, now, in Christ. So we put on the armor of God the same way we put on the new self. How does that work? Well, first we come to know the truth of our new identity in Christ. And then we cultivate the virtues and character of our identity in Christ so that we then behave and walk out in manners of love and light and wisdom and unity. We put on the armor here in the same way we put on those virtues there. Paul's saying the same thing in that way. So again, putting on the armor of God is not a sign of independence, but a call to greater dependence in our relationship with Christ. I think the idea of the whole armor, the complete armor of God, is based on our relationship in Christ. Here's why I think that. There are more pieces of armor that a soldier could wear than the few that Paul has listed here. There could be a whole lot more to the whole armor in verses 14 to 17. It's, it's not a complete set of armor, really. And there are more Christian virtues that Paul could have listed in verses 14 to 17 than just those six that he has. It's not, it's not a complete and exhaustive list of virtues, but they are strong representatives. What's complete about the armor is the completeness of God's supply of power. 
It's not that you have to have these six things, not five of them, and not a seventh one that's missing. It's not that. It's that the, the completeness is the power that God gives you. What's whole is the relationship between the believer in Christ has with God when he depends entirely upon Christ and the powerful armor that he provided. This sounds a little bit like, I'm giving you guns so you can go fight a war. But he's really saying, I'm calling you closer to wrap you up in this armor so that you'll find my power, my armor, is what stands. We've got to understand that. We need to have that picture. So you don't want to rely on your own power in this world. You want to know and grow and use the whole armor that enables you to stand against the schemes of the devil. Let's look at the verses 11 to 13 again. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's why you take up the whole armor of God. So you can stand in the evil day, having done all to stand firmly. Oh, that's why we need the armor of God. That's why our armor's not good enough. Because the church will face a variety of well-planned strategic attacks from a powerful supernatural enemy, the devil. On our own, we are no match for him. And he's not alone. He has at his command a whole range of evil spiritual forces, rulers and authorities and powers in the heavenly places. Why is he after us? Why has he set his sights upon us? What did we ever do? Well, in chapter 1, remember, Paul made known to us the mystery of God's will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. There's God's battle plan, which means that the prince of the power of the air who charts the course of disobedience for everyone in this world is not just losing his people when they're made alive in Christ, but the kingdom of God, the church, advances against him. He's losing his kingdom. He's losing his princehood. So the devil and the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are in active opposition to the eternal plan of God. And he has set his sights on the church. Which means the church matters in the plan of God. Right? Yes. This whole letter has been about God's plan for the church. In bringing all things in submission unto Christ. And so the devil set his sights on us. Paul's revealing an implication of this mystery that he revolved. Ultimately, our enemy is not evil people. Our enemy is the spiritual forces of darkness that hold people in bondage to sin and death. That's our enemy. So we're engaged in spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. And as the term wrestle implies, wrestle or struggle, uh, your your version might say, it's going to be up close, face-to-face, hand-to-hand, grappling, It's going to be a struggle to stand firm. 
Paul uses this verb stand four times here in these couple of verses. We need God's divine power to stand. And you've probably heard that the armor of God is, is all defensive weaponry. I've heard that many times, except for the sword, because we're, we're only supposed to stand, as in stand still, hold your ground, don't fall, but don't retreat. And, and I think that's just a mistaken notion. We know that the church has been called to be on offense. All of the pieces of armor, belt and breastplate and shoes and helmet, are worn by a warrior whether he is fighting defensively or offensively. It's his gear. Truth and righteousness are used on offense and defense by the church. And the verb stand doesn't mean just stand still. That's not the, that's not the word Paul's using here. It means to take an aggressive stance. It means to take a fighting stance. Get ready to wrestle. That's what the word means. There's nothing here to cause us in the church to think that we're supposed to stand still or only defend what, we're supposed, what we already have. That would be a misunderstanding. The church is on offense and does defend herself with armor. But where's that same armor? On offense. Most importantly, it is Christ himself who gives this armor as gifts to his body, the church. You need to recognize that's what this is. We're not wandering around looking for pieces of armor on the ground to pick up and use. Jesus is giving them to us. Remember in chapter 4, verse 8, Paul quoted Psalm 68, in which David, Israel's warrior king, portrays God, in particular, the coming Messiah, Jesus, as a warrior king. You know, we, we stopped the sermon and, and dove into Psalm 68 for about 10 minutes or so, so that we could make that point. And so, Paul writes, when he ascended on high, when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He, he's walking in victorious triumph, and he's handing out the spoils of war to his people. He's giving all of this to us. In chapter 4, Jesus, our victorious warrior king, gave the church gifts of the apostles and the prophets and the teachers. That's where Paul used that. So the church will grow to full maturity in Christ himself, so it will grow in character. Here in chapter 6, Jesus, our triumphant warrior king, is giving the church gifts of armor so that the church will stand attack and push forward on kingdom offense and do so in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's what's happening here. When we enter into this list of gifts, of, of, of armor, we need to understand that they're being, they're being given to us by Christ. That's what's taking place. Let, let me read through that section real quickly, and then we'll, and we'll talk about it. Picking up in verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Again, we've, we've all been told that Paul is describing, probably been told, the, the, the armor of a Roman soldier, right? Paul's under house arrest in Rome. There's a centurion standing next to him. He may be chained to him, and he becomes a metaphor for the spiritual armor that Jesus is giving to his church. All of that is true, but... But Paul has a greater background to draw from than a Roman soldier. You see, in the Old Testament, Jesus is pictured as that warrior king in Psalm 68. Paul clearly has in mind 
Jesus, as the divine warrior, king, promised in the Old Testament, who's handing out these gifts to people. Paul doesn't need an analogy. It's written in Isaiah and in the Psalms that Jesus is the messianic divine warrior who wore a belt of truth and wore a breastplate of righteousness and who wore the footwear of peace and who held a shield of faith and who wore a helmet of salvation and who wielded the word of God like a sword. It's all in the Old Testament and it's all about Jesus. The Old Testament pictures Christ wearing this very armor in this very way. Listen, which links those of us who are in Christ with his armor. If this is the armor that Christ wears, and you are in Christ, you have access already to this armor. Believers don't have to go find this armor. Jesus the Messiah, the warrior king who wears this armor on his body, is placing this armor on his body, the church. Isn't it wonderful to be in Christ? There's a sense in which we're already wearing this armor because we're in Christ who wears this armor. And now he's saying, you wear it too. So in the same way that Paul said to put on the new man created in the likeness of God because that's who you are already, Paul says put on the armor of God which you have already in Christ. It's not the belt and the breastplate and the helmet that matter. It's the truth and the righteousness and the salvation that matter. But that just doesn't go over so well at VBS or or in kids' Sunday school because you've got to have something to make out of construction paper and strap on them. But it's not about those things. It's It's about truth and righteousness and salvation. And we who are in Christ have those things. Paul has told us already, we just have to put them on And how do we do that? Well, we acquire each piece by knowing. By knowing. And we practice each piece by doing. Paul prayed for us in this same way. In chapter 1, verse 17, Paul prayed that we would know Christ truthfully, that we would know him as he is, and that we would know Christ experientially that we would actually have a relationship and know him. Not just know about him, but know him. He prayed in chapter 1, verse 19, that we would know truthfully the immeasurable greatness of the power of God and that we would experience that power. Because that power which raised Christ from the dead is already at work in those who believe. So taking up each of these gifts of armament means acquiring it in our own hearts and our own minds and then practicing it in our daily living, our worthy walk. And there's one more thing to understand about each piece of armor. We get this wrong, we take on this armor and then we're the ones that stand in the way, but we are not the means by which we stand. The armor is the means by which we stand. And you can see it plainly. Truth defeats lies. Because it's truth. Righteousness defeats sin. Because it's righteous. And so on and so on. 
So this armor works because we are in Christ and because we are depending more on Christ for the power of God to stand against the devil. So I want to I walk through these six armaments <clears throat> and, just, uh, and just remind you of a few things. And, the, and some of them these are going to be repetitive because I want to hammer them home in your minds. First, we stand. We stand by fastening on the belt of truth. Truth is the means by which we stand firm against the devil's lies. It's the means. And it's in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, in the Septuagint that, that says this about Jesus the Messiah, our warrior king. It says, He shall be girded with righteousness around the waist and bound with truth around the sides. That's the picture Paul has in mind. So Jesus Christ the Messiah gives the armor of truth to his people. Paul understands the truth to be the gospel. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, In him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The truth is also true doctrines of the faith. In chapter 4, verse 5, Paul refers to the one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That one faith doesn't refer to my, doesn't refer to my personal faith, but to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as in Jude, verse 3. It's the truth of God that we believe by faith. And in chapter 4, verse 25, Paul says, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So we're to believe this and own this and then do this, speak and live in truth. The devil does not abide by the truth because there is no truth within him. He's the father of lies. He will lie and deceive and he will trick you. So we take up truth by knowing it and practicing it, by being honest and living with integrity. And the truth defeats the devil's schemes. <clears throat> the second piece of armor is that we stand by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. It's righteousness. Righteousness is the means by which we stand firm against the spiritual forces of this present darkness. Their unrighteousness were righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, it says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate, speaking of the messianic king, the warrior king that is divine. In Isaiah 59, the divine warrior king puts on righteousness to fight unrighteousness and bring redemption to his people. He's gone out to battle and win his people. So Jesus Christ gives the armor of righteousness that he wears to us to wear. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He tells the church in Rome that it's, a, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's what we have. Because one of the attacks of the devil is to question our righteous status before God, isn't it? He wants us, he wants to convince us that our righteousness depends on our performance, which would be a big win for him. Because we all have fallen short of the righteousness of God, and we know it. But we have a righteousness that comes from God that is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's where our righteousness comes from. It comes from Christ. So we take up righteousness by understanding we have been justified by Christ's righteousness, and by cultivating righteousness in our daily living to put off the old self and to bear the fruit of light What's the fruit of light? Well, it's, it's goodness, righteousness, and truth. 
The third piece of armor is peace. We stand prepared or in readiness to declare the gospel that brings peace. Being ready to proclaim the gospel is the means by which we stand firm against the devil's attacks. But also, it's the means by which we plunder the devil's house, setting captives free as they believe in the gospel that we proclaim. It's in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, where we see this picture of Christ. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Jesus, the divine messianic warrior, runs. That's what the shoe, you know, the shoe orientation is for. Runs to bring the good news of his victory. That there is salvation and peace because God reigns. And so Jesus gives the armor of peace to his people. Remember this in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's us in Christ who is our peace, and we are now at peace. And then according to uh, Verse 23 in chapter 1 and verse 10 in chapter 4, we, the church, are to fill the world with this good news that peace with God is now possible through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And this is, this is something that we have to be prepared for. This is something we have to be made ready for. We have to practice it so that the church is always in a status of readiness to proclaim the gospel. When the church boldly proclaims the gospel, it is a major assault on the kingdom of Satan. By his work on the cross, Jesus has bound the strong man in Mark chapter 3. The strong man protects his house, but Jesus is the stronger man. And he has bound the strong man, and now he is plundering the riches of that house, which is lost souls. He's saving lost souls. He's setting captive sinners free by deploying this weapon, the gospel of peace. Isn't that ironic? In the context of warfare, to call peace a weapon. The gospel of peace is the means by which we stand against the devil. And it is the means by which we advance the kingdom of God. And Jesus says that the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. We're talking about spiritual warfare. This is not literal physical warfare against human beings, human enemies. People, unbelievers, are not our enemies. Our enemy is the evil spiritual forces that stand behind them and incite the real acts of violence, aggression, strife, hatred, and bitterness. So we take up the readiness of the gospel of peace by knowing it, by having been saved by it, and we proclaim it to others. And we need this power of peace because it is the nature of the church. Peace 
within this body. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, Paul instructs us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the spirit, uh, unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's our nature. This is the household of God. This peace has been given to us. It's our job to maintain it, to walk in it. Fourth is faith. We stand by taking up the shield of faith. And faith is the means by which we stand firm against the devil and all the evil spiritual forces in this present darkness. You know, David writes in Psalm 35 in the first three verses, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. God is the one who's the warrior. And in Psalm 18, verse 30, it tells us that God is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. This faith is our saving faith in Christ. It is the confidence that we have in trusting Christ. Paul says in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. By the way, it was the gift of God then, when we looked at it in terms of coming to salvation, and it's the gift of Christ now, when we look at it in terms of armament with which we stand. In chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul prays for the church to have this very faith that according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you to be strengthened in the power in the inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And we can understand why faith is such a needed weapon because faith can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I want that. <laughs> That's, we get a little descriptor when it comes to faith. It extinguishes all the evil, flaming, fiery darts of the evil one. When he sends them your way, he's got you in his sights and he's firing these off, whether it's persecution or whether it's accusation, whether it's false teaching that creeps in or lies or sickness or pain or temptation to sin or doubt. Faith is a shield from those harms. And faith is a shield from fear. If you could bottle a shield from fear, Christian, you have it. Christian, you have it. And we take up this faith by trusting in Christ and living in the assurance of His promises. We walk by faith and not by sight. We have a new identity and a new reality in Christ by faith. The fifth armament is salvation. We stand by taking up the helmet of salvation. Salvation is the means by which we stand firm against the devil. It's in Isaiah 59 and verse 17 again that says that this divine warrior put a helmet of salvation on his head. I mean, you can just see. We, we don't really need the Roman soldier at all. Paul's simply calling on Christ in the Old Testament to tell us about Christ who's giving us the gifts of Christ, that we would walk in them. And here the divine warrior comes to the defense of his people. 
The idea is not so much, we have to kind of wrap our minds around this, the idea is not so much the assurance of salvation on the last day. We have that, but that's not what Paul's really bringing forward here, but rather that we are connected to Christ and his power through his resurrection and ascension. Remember what he said back in chapter 2 when we were made alive. In verses 5 and 6, By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are participants with Christ in his power and in his authority right now in this life. So we take up this salvation by realizing our new identity in Christ, which is power for deliverance from our supernatural enemies because of our union with the resurrected Lord. That resurrected power that's changing us, transforming us on the inside, is the very power by which we stand against the devil and his schemes. Sixth and last, we stand by taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word is the means by which we stand firm against the devil and all evil spiritual forces in this present darkness. It's in Isaiah chapter 11 in the Septuagint that reads, This is speaking of Christ the divine warrior. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breadth of his lips he will slay the wicked. You might might be thinking I am suddenly um, of, of Revelation when Jesus comes. The Lord comes on his horse with a sword. As a as coming out of his mouth, a sword of truth and righteousness with which he will judge. Hopefully, and I think you already know that you use the scriptures as a means of defense against temptation, right? Against attacks from the devil. And that's defensively, as Jesus did in his temptation in the wilderness. We do that. At the same time, the scriptures are are used offensively to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, aren't they? And that the Holy Spirit, who inspired the Scriptures, also empowers the Word of God to have its desired effect. That's why it's the sword of the Spirit. He inspired its perfect authorship, and the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in people's lives. He's the one who makes sure that when the Word of God goes out, it comes back having accomplished everything that God willed that it would accomplish. We take up God's true word by reading it and meditating on it, understanding it, and then living by it. Also, by teaching it and proclaiming it to others. As Paul described his own ministry in chapter 3. So, here we are, all outfitted with the whole armor of God. Now what do we do? Are we all dressed up with no place to go? Do we just look at ourselves in the mirror? Well, before we move on, I just want to say this. Let's realize that we are already doing something. What's that? With all of these things on, we're we're walking in a manner worthy. We put on truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word when we put on the new man. These are the Christian virtues that God has recreated in us in Christ. They are for our character development, our ongoing sanctification. But now we know, we knew that in chapter 4, now we know 
them to also be the armor of God. The power of God given as gifts to us so that we can be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We didn't know that before, but we do now. The same things. In other words, we're safe. I know you think you're pretty tough. I know you've had to make your way in this world. I know you've taken some risks. I know there are many things in this life that you've had to do independently. And the whole time what you've wanted to know is, you're safe. Even you tough men, I just want to know I'm safe. In Christ, we are good. Not of ourselves, but in Christ, we are good. Having been redeemed by his blood, he is making us holy and blameless. And in Christ, we're secure. Having been sealed by the Holy Spirit. In Christ is virtue, and in his virtue is power. The strength to stand firm, and the strength to push ahead, as Christ has called us to be ambassadors of his gospel. So in putting on the whole armor of God, we are already doing something, walking in a manner worthy. But not only that, we're winning. We're winning. This is God's battle plan that the church would move forward with this armament on. That the kingdom would grow. We're winning. It is the will and purpose of God that we should. And he will bring about final victory for those who are in Christ. In this context of cosmic warfare against the enemies of God, which will be fully subject to Christ one day, having put on the whole armor of God, Paul tells us to do something. He tells the church how to win. And this is what he says in verse 18. Praying. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Praying is different than the other things. Those were pieces of armor given to us. This is an action that we're called to. Praying is what we do to deploy our spiritual armament. You know, next week, we're going to focus on these verses, 18 to 20. We're just going to drill down a little deeper because they're profound for the church. They're profound for the church. They're profound for us. But I want to make a couple of basic connections this morning. If we were to outline verses 18 to 20, we would see that Paul says to do three things. He says, be strong, put on, and pray. Be strong in the Lord, put on the armor of God, and pray. You see, after putting on all the armor and preparing to stand, Paul says, kneel. Now that you're ready, get down on your knees and pray. See, because prayer is the heart of spiritual 
warfare. The church that puts on the whole armor of God, the church that is ready, is the church that prays. Which makes total sense. It makes total sense. Our initial reaction is, well, that's silly. Why go waste time, you know, sitting quietly with your head bowed and a bunch of other people in the room? No, it makes total sense. If our battle is not against flesh and blood, if our battle is against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm, we must pray. And so first Paul says, pray in the Spirit. In Christ, we pray in accordance with the Spirit of God who dwells within us. There's nothing magical or mystical about praying in the Spirit. It's not a special gear in which you pray. Oh, I was praying, but now I'm praying in Spirit gear. No. In all of our prayers, we pray in the Spirit. We are the people indwelled by the Spirit of God. We pray according to the will and purposes of God. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in the power of the Spirit who indwells us. The Spirit guides us and directs us and helps us to pray. And when we can't, He prays for us. So we want to pray in the Spirit. In accordance with what is true and righteous and peaceful. All of those things. And then secondly, Paul says, pray for one another. Pray alertly for the saints. Pray at all times for all the saints. There's, I think there are three or four alls in there. Once you, once you add up a couple of verses. Pray that the church and each individual member thereof would be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, which he has given to you in the form of truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word. That's kind of wrapping it all together. Do you see the connection though, right? Pray that the church and each individual member thereof would be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, with which he has given to you in the form of these, these armors that he's just given you. Truth, righteousness, faith, peace, salvation, and the word. Pray for your brothers and your sisters to know these things and to practice these things. That would be praying these verses. So that by them, they would resist the schemes of the devil in their hearts, in their marriages, in their families, and in this church. And pray for the saints to boldly proclaim the gospel. Paul uses himself as an example for a prayer request that's in line with God's mission for his church. That the gospel word that has been given to him would be given him when he opens his mouth to boldly proclaim it. Well, why is Paul asking for help in evangelism? Why is Paul asking for prayer? He's not just praying that people would be saved. He's saying, pray that the words I've already been given would actually come out of my mouth when I open it to speak those words. So, so, so here's Paul who, who knows the armor and who seeks to practice the armor. And he wants that armor deployed and so he asks the church to pray. Pray that I do this. 
I think that's amazing. Why should we pray for Paul? You know, he's the, he's the evangelism church planning superstar. Paul doesn't think that way at all. Hey, please pray for me. Because this is how things happen in the spirit realm. By praying. We're, there's a universe next door, right? It's the spirit realm. It's there, it's real, we don't see it, but we feel its impact and its effects. And through this armor and through praying, we can have an impact. The God says so. God says so. You pray, and these things will happen. The Apostle Paul knows he ought to. He still asks for prayer that he would. So this, this passage about the armor of God, it's pretty serious, isn't it? There's, there's a whole couple of verses there that he talks about our adversary and our opposition. It's pretty serious. It's also seriously encouraging. We're not at their whim. We're not exposed and vulnerable. Not if we have these, these armaments on. Christ has given you his armor and his strength. It looks like truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the gospel word. Know them and practice them and you will be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for not leaving us vulnerable to attack, but by giving us what we need, the very power of Christ in his strength and in his might. Thank you that Jesus is the giver of gifts to his church. Thank you that Jesus, who as the divine warrior was clad with these armaments, clads his own body, the church, with these same armaments that we might stand and that we might pursue. Father, we, we thank you for these things, but we know that they are all for your glory. And so it's for your glory and in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.